So this is EAGP Reforms podcast number three. Welcome to Legal Aid New South Wales Early Appropriate Guilty Plea podcast. This is the third podcast in our series of five during which we will be talking about the Early Appropriate Guilty Plea Reform, also known as the EAGP Reform. Uh, my name is Nick Ashby and joining me today are Rob Hoyles and Kepi Waters. We're all from the EAGP implementation team at Legal Aid. We're all practising solicitors in the Criminal Law Division at Legal Aid, uh, very much um, defence focused. You might have seen us if you've attended one of our 30 or so training sessions around the state. So why are we here? Well, in this series, we hope to give you an explanation of the EAGP reforms. We're going to refer you to the relevant legislation, and we're also going to talk about some of the operational aspects of the reforms. Uh, Cappy. We'll also give the lawyers tuning in suggestions and tips for how to deal with EAGP matters, and we hope that this will add to your reading and your understanding of the legislation. And Rob, what will we be covering in this podcast? Well, in this podcast, we will cover stages three and four of the EAGP committal process. These are case conferencing and the case conferencing certificate. So what are the purposes of case conferencing? The main purpose of a case conference is to determine whether there are any offences to which the accused person is willing to plead guilty. That's set out in Section 70 of the Criminal Procedure Act. The other purposes of a case conference might be for the defence to be given further material so that an accused can decide whether or not to plead guilty. It can also be for the parties to identify issues for trial or which facts are in dispute. So those other purposes seem to be directed towards reducing court time, even though a matter might go to trial? Yeah, that's right. So, Cathy, when is a case conference held? In terms of the EAGP committal process, it only happens after a charge certificate has been filed. And is it mandatory in every committal matter? No, it's not. Uh, If a client pleads guilty to the certified charge, then there won't be a case conference. If a client is committed for trial on the issue of fitness after charge certification, then they also would bypass case conferencing. So what if the accused doesn't have a lawyer? Well, they won't have a case conference either. The case conferences only happen when an accused is legally represented, and that's because a case conference is essentially a a conference between the defence legal representative and the prosecutor involved. That could prove difficult if you've got to juggle everyone's court commitments. Yes, it will be. And once you have a date for the conference, but before the court actually adjourns, you'll also need to think about how the case conference will actually be held. I would have assumed it would be face-to-face. Well, Section 71 of the Criminal Procedure Act says that the first case conference can be held either face-to-face or by AVL. Um, But the DPP have said that, look, their default position will be that all conferences will be done by AVL. And the Commonwealth DPP have said that they will be doing theirs face-to-face. So what if there are no AVL facilities? Well, Section 71 allows for a magistrate to order that the first case conference can be done by phone but only if they are satisfied that there are exceptional circumstances that make it impracticable to have the conference face-to-face or by AVL. So we need to apply to the court for it to be done by phone before adjourning for the conference? Yes, that's right. So Rob, what else should we think about in getting ready for a case conference? Um, Our obligations under Section 72 of the Criminal Procedure Act. We mentioned these in podcast number two. Um, For our listeners who haven't heard what we said, can you tell us what our Section 72 obligations are? Well, before a case conference, you're required to explain to your client four things. Those things are, one, how the mandatory sentence discount scheme applies, two, what the penalties are for the certified charges, three, what the penalties are for 
any of the offences for which the defence or the Crown have made an offer. And four, the effect on these penalties if your client pleads guilty to any of those offences at different stages of the matter. Now that sounds like what a competent practitioner would do in any matter anyway. Well, there is a degree of truth to that, but there are two main differences with Section 72. The first difference is that the section itself uses the words explain, which some practitioners think mean you must be satisfied your client understands when you explain to them in order to properly comply with Section 72. The second difference is that defence representatives are required to sign a declaration to say that they have complied with Section 72. And where would we find that declaration? Well, it is part of the case conference certificate. So we're going to talk uh, more about the case conference certificate later in this podcast, but it's fair to say this is a pretty important part of the process for us as defence practitioners. Yeah, that's right. Um, For this reason, Legal Aid, the Public Defenders, the Law Society's Criminal Law Committee and members of the Bar Association have put their heads together and developed three guides to help defence practitioners to understand what Section 72 means and how you comply with it. And now where can our listeners find these guides? Um, they are available on Legal Aid's New South Wales EAGP webpage um, and also on the Public Defender's website. So, Cap, uh, how long is an adjournment for a case conference? Well, according to the practice note, it's eight weeks. It's expected that you have the case conference in the first six weeks and you finalise the case conference certificate in the last two weeks so that it can be filed by the date that's been ordered by the court. And who will actually participate in a case conference? Well, for the Crown, it will be the certifying prosecutor and the DPP instructing solicitor with carriage. And for the defence, it will be the accused lawyer and their counsel if they've been briefed. What about our clients? Do they come too? Well, your client can participate, but that only happens if the Crown and the defence agree. And look, we've been told by the DPP that they're highly unlikely to agree to any of our clients attending. So are our clients involved at all? Well, they are, yes. Um, Clause 9E of the Criminal Procedure Regulation is relevant here. It says that an accused is required to be available to provide instructions during a case conference. So from what you've just said, it looks like they won't be available to the A... Sorry, they won't be connected to the AVL between the lawyer and the Crown. So what does being available mean? Well, yes, that's right. They won't be connected to the AVL between um, their lawyer and the Crown. Um, But Clause 9E also talks about or says what available means... So if your client's on remand, they're considered to be available if they can give you instructions either in person or by AVL. And if that isn't reasonably practicable, they are available to give instructions to you by phone. And what about our clients that are on bail? Well, they're available if they can give you instructions in person. If that isn't reasonably practicable or just not appropriate, then they're available if they can give you instructions by AVL or by phone. So I can see some issues cropping up where clients in custody get moved last minute, which, as we all know, happens a lot. So what about for the client on bail that doesn't show up for the case conference where you can't get hold of them on the phone? Does that mean you have to cancel the case conference? Well, not necessarily. Clause 9E, subclause 6, says that a failure by a person to comply with that clause doesn't in fact affect the validity of anything done or not done um, for the purposes of committal proceedings. So that seems to suggest that if things go awry in terms of those arrangements, um, that a case conference wouldn't be invalid. Okay, so you still go ahead? Yes, but you would really need to make the call to go ahead without your client being available on a case-by-case basis. I know, for example, with some prevaricating clients that you might actually not want to make any offers to the Crown or discuss anything with the, with the Crown without confirming their instructions before going ahead. So Rob, 
What would happen if one of the Crown or Defence representatives gets jammed in court? Well, the case conference can still go ahead if you and the Crown think it can. Um, the expectation that the certifying prosecutor attends the case conference is, of course, subject to court commitments, and it's not a legal requirement. Um, it's something that's been agreed to by the DPP in the development of the process for how case conferencing works. OK. Um, what happens if you don't finish the negotiations during the case conference? Can you have another one? Yeah, Section 70 of the Criminal Procedure Act allows for there to be more than one case conference. Um, although the practice note doesn't specifically mention anything about second or subsequent case conferences. Um, but you could also have another case conference if an amended charge certificate is filed by a prosecutor. OK, and what about matters where there are co-accused? There will be separate case conferences for each accused unless the prosecutor and all of the accused representatives agree to a joint conference being held. So we think it will be very rare. And who bears the burden of organising the case conference? Um, the defence representative is required to organise and set up the case conference. It's a nice balance between the charge being certified by the prosecutor and the case conference certificate being filed by the prosecutor, but ultimately it's the defence representative who bears the burden of responsibility for completing the case conference certificate, uh, for organising the case conference. So I'm sure our listeners will want to know, how do we arrange the case conference booking? Well, if you have access to the Just Connect booking system, for example, if you work at Legal Aid, then you can use it to book the case conference even if your client is on bail. The great thing about Just Connect is it sends an automatic email telling those attending the time, date and location of the booking. Now, some of our listeners won't have access to Just Connect, so what can they do? Well, any other defence practitioners will be able to contact Legal Aid's case conferencing hub if they want to use Legal Aid facilities in order to be able to carry out the case conference. The hub is being established and will be ready by the time case conferences are due to be held. And you said defence practitioners. Does that include private practitioners with private paying clients? Yes, Legal Aid has resources to have staff to be able to make bookings for practitioners and to offer practitioners' rooms related to AVL facilities to use to hold case conferences. And that's the case whether the client is a private paying client or whether it's a legally aided client. And so which legal aid offices will have the facilities? Well, we anticipate all legal aid offices will be able to do this, not just Central Sydney. So, Kat, let's talk about um, booking times. Will we need to book times during business hours? Yes, we will. Uh, and obviously, you need to keep in mind that if your client's in custody, you'll, you'll be limited uh, to the hours when case conference AVL studios will be available at different jails. Um, AVL studios specifically for case conferences are currently being built in a lot of New South Wales jails. And most jails only take AVL bookings until 3pm, is that right? Yes, that's right. But MRRC is the exception. From memory, you can book up to 6pm with the MRRC. And can you help our listeners with any other information about the logistics of conferencing? Well, yes, there's two things that um, the listeners should be aware of. Firstly, there will be a session at this year's Legal Aid New South Wales Criminal Law Conference to discuss EAGP matters. Um, that session will be on Friday the 3rd of August, the last day of the conference. And the speakers plan to elaborate on the best practice approach for case conferencing. And secondly... A number of agencies are collaborating to put together a best practice guide for case conferencing. Once the guide's finalised, it will be uploaded to the Legal Aid New South Wales uh, website. OK, well, we all look forward to hearing more about case conferencing. Rob, let's talk about case conference certificates. What is a case conference certificate? Well, a case conference certificate is a formal record of any offers made by the prosecution or defence before, during or after a case conference. Um, essentially, it represents the final opportunity before committal 
to preserve a client's 25% discount on sentence. You mentioned offers before the case conference. Does that mean an offer made, for example, before charge certification should be included? Yes, all offers you've already made to the DPP should be included. You won't be able to just rely on an offer made in an email, say, before the case conference as you ordinarily would under the old practice. It will have to be included in the case conference certificate in order to actually protect your client's um, discount once, if, if the matter does ultimately come to a sentence. And what will the case conference certificate look like? Well, the case conference certificate is in a form prescribed by the regulations. Um, form 1B in the regulations sets out the form of the case conference certificate. Now, you mentioned it will include all the offers made by both parties. What other information will a case conference certificate include? It includes the certified charges and whether the offers have been accepted or rejected. Um, it lists the offences which the prosecution will take to trial. If the accused is to be committed for sentence, it lists the offences for committal and any agreed or disputed facts. The Criminal Procedure Act in Section 75 lists all the information that's required to be included in a case conference certificate. So you've mentioned there agreed or disputed facts. Does that mean if we're going to trial, we have to specify what facts are in dispute? No, agreed and disputed facts only need to be included if there is a guilty plea and the matter is being committed for sentence. A copy of the facts can be attached to the certificate or they can be specified in the certificate itself. So, Kepi, um, is there any obligation on the defence to tell the prosecution their case? No. There's nothing specific required of defence practitioners um, as a result of these reforms other than defence pre-trial disclosure obligations which have existed before the reforms actually commenced. And we mentioned earlier that both parties have to sign the certificate. Yes, both parties need to sign the certificate and that includes the defence declaration that Section 72 of the Criminal Procedure Act has been complied with and any client will also need to sign the certificate if they intend to take their matter to trial. So why does the client sign the certificate? Well, essentially they're signing the to declare that their legal representative has given them advice that's consistent with Section 72. So logistical issues, if the client's in custody, getting them to sign might be difficult. A client might also not want to sign it if they know the certificate is going to be given to the court. Well, yes, they're both true, and in both situations it could be difficult. Um, Section 75 of the Criminal Procedure Act says that the certificate will not necessarily be invalid if your client doesn't sign the certificate, but it would still be best practice, we think, for defence lawyers to do everything they can to try and get their client to sign that declaration. And what about issues of confidentiality and risks to our client's safety? For example, if they're facing child uh, sexual offences. Well, we're hoping that when the prosecution actually draft the certificate that it will be formatted so that the client declaration will be on a separate page to the rest of the certificate, including what offences the person is facing. If it's not, then realistically practitioners will need to think about um, the matter on a case-by-case basis, whether or not they decide to fax the certificate and the declaration or post the certificate um, to the client in custody for them to sign. So Rob, we also need to think about the fact that Corrective Services New South Wales staff read our clients' mail if they were to post a declaration back to us, as well as the delays in getting mail in and out of the jails. Yeah, those are all things that we need to think about. So when do you think a practitioner should sign the certificate? Well, best practice would be um, at the court on the day it is due to be filed. Um, This will help protect you and your client by making sure the correct version is being signed and then filed with the court. 
Of course, in some matters, there may be um, many versions, issues of version control, and um, so we want to make sure that it's the right version being filed. Absolutely. I think all lawyers have an obligation to ensure that they sign and hand up the version that's the final version. So do you have any advice for our listeners about what would happen if there is, is an issue with the certificate, for example, if an offer hasn't been included? Look, there are a number of ways you could approach that situation. I think it really does turn on its individual circumstances. You could raise it with the court. You could ask the court to adjourn the matter so that the offer could be included in the certificate. Other than adjourning the matter, does the magistrate have any power to do anything else? In circumstances where there is what the legislation describes as unreasonable failure by a party to participate in the conference or to complete or file the certificate, the magistrate can take certain steps. They could adjourn it, or if it's the prosecution's failure, the magistrate could discharge the accused. On the other hand, if it's the defence representative's failure, the magistrate could commit the accused for trial or sentence, as if the conference wasn't required. So pretty significant consequences for either side. Yes, and when it comes to a sentence or an appeal, a higher court could refuse to admit the case conference certificate into evidence if either party hasn't complied. So, Cappy, when does the case conference certificate get prepared? Well, it's after the case conference has been held, and if you've had more than one case conference, then it's completed after all the case conferences have been held. It's filed whenever there has been a case conference, so even if there's been a resolution and agreement that the matter will resolve. And does the prosecution file the certificate? Yes, they will file it with the local court. Um, Realistically, we expect that it will be done in court on the date ordered by the magistrate and we expect that it will be sealed and kept on the court file. So what can we do if our client changes their mind about an offer they made which has been accepted? Can it be withdrawn? Yes. Any offer made in the certificate can be withdrawn, even if the prosecutor has accepted it. An offer doesn't amount to a guilty plea being entered. Um, It would probably mean that the matter would need to be adjourned for the case conferencing certificate to be edited or to to be redone um, if the client changes their mind before the certificate has actually been filed. And is there anything we can do if our client wants to make an offer after the certificate is filed but before the matter has been committed? Yes, you can rely on Section 77 of the Criminal Procedure Act. Um, It allows for offers to be made in those circumstances and to have them count as if they were made during the case conference. And the section actually refers to them as what we call late offers. And are, are there any criteria for late offers? Yes, so a late offer is an offer that is made after the case conference certificate is filed but before committal. Um, It's the kind of offer that would have been included in the certificate as if it had been made, for example, during a case conference. Um, The offer has to be in writing. It has to be served on the other party, so the DPP or the Commonwealth DPP, and it's also filed with the local court registry. If your offer ticks all those boxes that I've mentioned, then it will be attached to the case conference certificate and, and held on the court file. So just to be clear, we don't have to get the DPP to sign the offer? No, it's not like the case conference certificate. Well, that sounds very very useful. Uh, Rob, I imagine our listeners are going to be concerned about how their offers might be used against them when they go to trial. Are there any restrictions around how offers can be used by a prosecutor? Well, yes, there are. Uh, Do you want to tell us about those restrictions? Well, firstly, the case conference certificate is confidential. But a sentencing judge would need to look at it. Yes, the legislation says the case conference material is not admissible in any proceedings before a court or tribunal. But the certificate is not inadmissible in different types of proceedings. In other words, in some state and commonwealth sentence proceedings, the certificate is admissible, um, and Section 78 of the Criminal Procedure Act sets out a number of other circumstances in which the certificate might be admissible. So you've drawn a distinction between case conference material 
and the case conference certificate. What does case conference material include? Well, case conference material is a little broader. It includes the case conference certificate, as well as evidence of anything said between the parties during a case conference or during negotiations after a case conference concerning a plea to be made by or offers made to or by an accused. And any admission made during a case conference or during negotiations after a case conference concerning a plea to be made by or offers made to or by an accused person. I know that's a really long and complex answer to your question, but um, if you are want some clarity, you can look at Section 78, Subsection 5 of the Criminal Procedure Act, where it is defined. And are there, are there any other restrictions lawyers should be aware of? Yes, well, broadly, publishing case conference material is prohibited, and it is a criminal offence um, to which fines apply. Um, publishing has a very particular meaning in this context that is defined in Section 80 of the Act, and that includes providing public access to someone via the internet, radio or TV. OK, thanks, um, Rob and Cappy. Uh, well, we hope that our chat today has given you a good idea about case conferencing and case conference certificates. These are two new steps in the EAGP process that we all need to get our heads around. Now, if you're looking for more information about this and other parts of the EAGP reform, head to the Legal Aid New South Wales website. Under the tab for lawyers, you'll find resources and tools. Look for EAGP, which will take you to our webpage with links to all the relevant legislation, copies of the practice notes, the brief protocol, and the Commonwealth DPP guidelines. You'll also find our extremely um, thorough uh, EAGP guide for practitioners. Thank you for listening to our EAGP podcast. Tune in to our next podcast in the series during which we will talk about the process of committal. Until next time.